Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Unprecedented, the new podcast hosted by me, journalist Angelica Malin. Unprecedented times call for unprecedented support. And through this new mini-series, I'll be chatting to the leading lights in a variety of fields about how not just to survive COVID-19, but thrive. Whether it's getting a grip on your anxiety, navigating a change in your work situation, or managing your money, This podcast will provide the insights and expertise needed to help you through these strange and challenging times. Julia Samuel MBE is a leading British psychotherapist who spent the last 30 years working with bereaved families. During the course of her career, she's worked for both the NHS and then in private practice. She's founder patron of Child Bereavement UK and has written two books, Grief Works and This Too Shall Pass, which Esther Perel called a remarkable portrayal of how we need to understand ourselves truly. Julia, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, a pleasure to meet you. First off, because this is how I like to start every show, is just checking in with you. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm feeling extremely pleased with myself because I've been on a 19-mile bicycle ride already this morning and had my boiled egg for breakfast, so I feel slightly like I'm winning one today. (laughs) You're putting me to shame because I actually was eating toast as I came on this call. I was like, and I'm in my pajamas and I have a podcast after this. And I just checked with them and I was like, it's not a filmed one, is it? Because I I always get that panic before you do something that you're suddenly going to be on screen. And I'm in my kind of Mickey Mouse pajamas. (laughs) Could you share with us the work that you do and how you came into this line of work? So I'm a psychotherapist um, and now an author, although that feels quite as kind of new identity. And I really, I started counselling 30 years ago, um, just at the, when I'd finished having all my children. I had four children before I was 29. Um, And um, I think it really was from my childhood. Both my parents had very significant losses by the time they were 25. So my mother, by the time she was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died. She was the only survivor in her family. And my father, his father and his brother had died. So I think there was a lot of unexpressed loss. They never talked about the people that died. They never talked about how they felt. They were very much that old school of um, stiff upper lip and keep going. And what you don't talk about um, doesn't hurt you. And I think I kind of learned really the reverse, that what you don't talk about does hurt you. And so I think it was a profound influence that got me into being a psychotherapist and I'm much more interested in what's going on inside somebody than what they look like. 
So seeing you in your pajamas wouldn't be the thing that interests me. It would be knowing what you're feeling and thinking and what got you to do this and all of those things. Absolutely. And the two books that you've written, could you tell us a little bit about the books? So Grief Works um, was my first book, which came out in 2017. And that was about what I felt was that all the learning is of being a therapist of the hundreds of people I've seen in my kind of room at St. Mary's Hospital where I worked or, or at home. Um, I felt there was a lot of learning that and people who couldn't access therapy, that if I could tell the most personal stories of people's loss, whether it was a partner that died, a parent, a child or a sibling or, or facing their own death, that they would it help them understand themselves and help them support themselves. Um, and that pain is the agent of change, that we need to kind of allow the pain in order to adapt and, and process grief. And then this new book, um, This Too Shall Pass, Stories of Change, Crisis and Hopeful Beginnings, which feels a kind of very prescient title. Yeah. It was, it was done a year ago, um, is that... Every client that's come through my door, whatever the presenting issue, they've had a problematic relationship with change and they felt that somehow they're doing it badly. And so, again, it was a similar reason that I wanted people to realize that what they're feeling is normal and that both with a living loss, which is this too shall pass or a loss by grief. The thing that matters most is knowing yourself and finding ways to support yourself so that you go through it. And that it's always painful. I mean, it's all uncomfortable at one end and painful at the other. What I love so much about This Too Shall Pass was the individual case studies of the people that you talk to. Because I think so often we can hear advice um, or insight, but it's something about the power of a story that really connects with us. And you often find yourself connecting with a small part of someone's story or you recognize something in yourself. And there was definitely some um, case studies in the book where that, that where it really affected me and I could really see kind of previous behavior or situations or emotions that I'd been in. And I think that's such a powerful thing. It is incredibly powerful. I think the most personal is the most universal. And I think we know ourselves and others best from stories. And like you're saying, so a lot of, of times I've been told that people in completely different circumstances, you know, it could be a man, the man who had a, a cancer diagnosis, but a woman who isn't ill sees, recognizes herself in him because there are elements of being human that are so universal, but they connect us. And then you go, ah, so I'm not a weirdo. I am normal. (laughs) Yeah. But you, and it feels very, I think that feels very curative, just that alone. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the vulnerability of it as well. You always find that you connect best with people when you're mutually vulnerable. And I think again, seeing stories where people have been vulnerable, it allows you to open up at a level of yourself, perhaps that you've been suppressing. And when you open up, that's when you kind of free yourself. So the energy you use to hide your vulnerability, to block the aspects of yourself that you don't like so much, then means that you have a sort of distance from yourself and a disconnection from other people. So it's a kind of horrible cycle that you can get into. But, you know, like when you're with friends, once you're kind of open with each other and you exchange difficult stories or stories of things that you'll find your you know like boyfriend stories kind of thing you feel more and more at peace with yourself and closer to the person opposite you and that's in the end what we most want is 
kind of connection to other people. We're born to connect. And I don't want to be too general about it, but I do find that women are better at doing that. I know that the conversations I have with my girlfriends are often very intimate and very personal within the first five seconds of seeing them. <laughs> and then when I've had boyfriends in the past and they've gone for dinner with their mates and I'll say, what did you talk about? And be like, oh, this and that, you know, football and and, you know, work. And I mean, it, my boyfriend at the time was going through a huge personal change. And I said, you didn't talk about that thing that's, you know, really upsetting you. He was like, well, no, 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 we don't really talk about that kind of stuff. And that for me is, I've been anecdotally, I've something I've experienced a lot throughout my life with the way that men and women interact. I, I agree. I mean, I think men are sort of men are taught not to cry. I think there is a generational change that the younger men, that so many more men go to therapy now, still not as many as women. But I think men have more kind of psychological and emotional intelligence and awareness than they did before. Um, but I think their first men tend to want to do things and fix things. Women tend to want to ruminate and kind of explore and feel and kind of go into it, like with a sort of Sherlock Holmes mission. Um, and of course, you can get women and like men and the other way around. Uh, but I think men in their most intimate relationships, when those relationships work, particularly from sort of age sort of 45 and under, they are better at talking about how they feel. Mm -hmm. But I think women have to role model it. So I think they learn from the women that they're with. Yeah. Or from their mums. Yeah, or from their mums. That's very interesting. So on change, because obviously the book is a huge focus on change. Why is it that we find it so hard to deal with change? And you mentioned about that relationship between pain and change. If you could just elaborate a bit on that. So I think we find change, although we know life is change, we could sort of objectively see it because you just have to look at the people around you and you can see that just aging alone is it changes you. And research shows that we face big change every seven to 10 years. So, you know, change, you know, the seven year itch is a thing. But um, we, I think we feel safe um, with familiarity and what we know that we're kind of inhabiting this place. And all of us have those habits, you know, the way you get up and put your left sock on. So we we're ha habit forming beings. So something that feels very new and the greater the change, the greater the demand on us feels like we're thrown into an alien territory. And that's like that sets our alarm system up, you know, fight, flight or freeze, because you kind of it looks and feels like danger. And it takes time much longer than people want to adapt and process the internal change that they have to do to face the external um, event. So, you know, within the pandemic, I think people, most people felt very anxious to begin with. Um, and everybody's, so there was a, a YouGov survey and people's happiness levels dropped by 50% or 45% and their anxiety levels rose a huge amount. But actually a month later, their um anxiety has dropped and their happiness has has risen because they've kind of what they feared wasn't it wasn't quite as bad as they expected it to be I mean of course there'll be individuals either end who will find it much worse than they expected because there always is I found that some of my friends who suffer in normal time quite badly with anxiety have felt better during this time which for me feels kind of strange but I having spoken to them a lot of 
my friends who've in this situation have said, well, you know, I always worry about the worst happening and now it's happened. Um, do, you th- do you think there's something in that? I think there's something in that is that what we don't know and we kind of imagine is much more threatening than when you're actually in it. And then it has a limit. Um, but also people that my clients that I've worked with who are very anxious, they are all very unhappy have sort of said, well, we're all in it together. Of course, it's different for different people, depending on your circumstances. But I don't feel like I used to a month ago that the world is having a party while I'm stuck at home feeling miserable. Everybody's stuck at home. So there's a there's a kind of plateau. Is that the word? No, not plateau. There's a sort of um, a connection between all of us now, mm-hmm. which I didn't feel before. Before I felt an outsider. I don't feel an outsider anymore. Yeah, there's it's the end of fear of missing out because there's really nothing yeah. to be missing out on at the moment. It's just long queues outside the supermarket, really, in an hour's walk. And I think there is something, I think, quite liberating and freeing about knowing that, that everyone is just at home and watching Netflix. And I mean, not everyone, but everyone who isn't a key worker. And there is something, I think, that stops our comparison, which probably is quite liberating. Comparing is the route to absolute misery, I completely agree. But also, what I'm curious about is that busyness is an anaesthetic to our capacity to feel, because when you're busy, you cut off your emotion um, just to keep going. And, you know, busyness has been the new kind of badge of honour, hasn't it? Everyone's so incredibly busy, and it's like you're competitively busy with everybody else. And now people may well be busy at home, but without the commute, without so many other things, they do have more time. And in the same way as vulnerability, I think it's given people an opportunity to open up and allow themselves to feel and connect and have experiences within their family that they literally haven't ever done as a family. You know, having conversations, walking and talking, sitting around the kitchen table. You know, if you've got two working parents and, you know, two kids who are always busy you're always kind of doing your next chore you're catching up and I think this has allowed a level of connection um, and a liberation from that connection that people have found surprising and very um, enriching absolutely and I think also in normal time when you ask someone how are you you don't expect them to give an honest answer you expect them to say I'm fine but I think with what's going on in the world we're all more anxious and worried and we're worrying about our loved ones and so there is a a vulnerability that we're willing to actually say oh I actually am finding it hard today or I'm a bit lonely and I think talking about loneliness is a huge stigma that I feel like in the last few weeks people have spoken a lot more about feeling lonely and the importance of connection and how we can connect better with our friends and family so it's it's shifted the dial a lot on how we interact it's shifted what we value so I think we're beginning I mean people are really going to suffer economically I mean I, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that is going to be for for many people but you know that Harvard study 75 year study um looked at hundreds of of people and when they look back on their lives what it was that mattered most and it was their love and connection to others and those that had good loving relationships both with partners and with friends they were wealthier they were healthier their memory was better and they suffered less pain so you know love and connection is the elixir to life and I think we've all been on this sort of machine to economically succeed and beat 
our neighbour, as it were. And um, I think people are questioning that. I, I will be very interested to see what actual changes it will bring because people tend to go back to what they know because, as I've said, people prefer the safety of habit. So I think people are thinking and talking a lot about change, but whether they actually take the step to do it takes courage, it takes endurance. Um, I, I don't know if they will. Yes, yeah, so I suppose it depends whether they keep up that change after the lockdown lifts and, mm. and how that changes things. And then the other huge topic that um, you focus on in the book is grief. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your work helping people deal with grief? Like, What have you learned about grief over the course of your career? And are there any patterns in the way that grief works? I mean, grief is work. It's painful. Um, and... I suppose what matters most, and research supports this, is the support that you get at the time of the loss um, and after the loss is the predictor of your outcome. But there are lots of other things that influence it. it the, the relationship you had with the person that died, your psychological makeup, um, your history, how much loss you've had in the past, um, and what else you have in your life that supports you. So there there are many aspects that will influence your capacity to grieve, but basically the measure of your love is equal to the measure of your loss. And I suppose the work that I did was, so my work at St. Mary's was I supported families where a child or a baby died and I was there for 25 years. So that's a particular kind of loss where you have a death that is out of time. You never expect to bury your own child. Um, and it's a death of your future as you kind of envisaged it. So it, it kind of crushes your belief system about yourself and life and your trust in yourself and life. So it takes a long time to begin to adapt and find people talk about their new normal. So, you know, my parents' generation was very much you get over loss and you move forward. And what we talk about now is that you accommodate the loss so it becomes part of you and continuing bonds that you have to, the task, if you like, the work that people do with me is allowing themselves to feel the pain because pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces them to face this reality that they don't want to be true, that the person they love has died. And how and getting support to manage that pain that sort of comes in waves people often talk about it like it hits you like a wave but also at the same time continuing bonds that although the person has died it might be a child it might be a partner it might be a parent the the relationship doesn't die the love never dies so finding touchstones to memory and ways of continuing that relationship although the person has died also supports you this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When I said to, um, that I was interviewing you today, a friend of mine reached out to me and she said that she'd recently had a miscarriage and she wanted me to ask you about it because she said that she felt she was grieving for someone that she never met and it felt so intense, but there were times that she felt like she was kind of judging herself or feeling kind of guilty that it wasn't a valid emotion and her grief wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't correct in, in some way. It was an early stage miscarriage, but she said she felt it so deeply. And she wanted me just to ask you for some advice about your experience with that. I mean, absolutely a miscarriage. I mean, there is greater understanding now, but what she's grieving for is the future that she expected the minute she saw that blue line. So she didn't have a miscarriage of a eight-week potential baby. She had the loss of seeing that baby in, in her arms, which she imagined the minute she knew she was pregnant, of imagining her new life, you know, pushing a pushchair, having to get a different car. She'd planned a whole different future. So she's grieving the future she had a right to expect and she expected, um, as well as the relationship with this baby. So it's a very legitimate loss, and it is never the number of weeks that measures the level of the loss, but the emotional investment in the pregnancy. Yeah. So if she can do things that help her legitimize her loss and acknowledge it, but also some rituals. I was talking to someone this week who had a miscarriage, and we were talking about she might get a, a ring that's made um, that would represent the baby. She's going to plant um a plant, some plants, a bush in the garden to represent the baby. She's going to go for a walk and go and light a candle. So that you, I think we need rituals. And with miscarriage, you don't have a funeral. But rituals, I think, mark the importance and the significance of the loss. And the thing about grief, all grief, is that it's invisible, that you can't see it. So she's walking around. No one has any idea how much she's suffering or what she's kind of dealing with and facing. So if she can find external expressions of that, that that sort of market for her and the father and her family, I think that would be very helpful. 
Well, it's interesting. One of the things she said to me was that she was so grateful for the lockdown period because it allowed her space with her husband to grieve and to feel her sadness and not have to kind of push through or go back to work. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the way in which our busyness um, forces us not to confront change or loss, I suppose. And she was she said, I'm really grateful for this time and, and having to be inside and just sit with my emotion. Time is incredibly precious. And, um, you know, we take much longer to adjust to losses than, than we expect and certainly much longer than society allows us. So even, you know, when I work with families when they had children die, and these could be teenagers or a um, 12-year-old or an 8-year-old, they were often expected to go back to work two weeks after the funeral and um, expecting someone to function effectively and normally after a sort of massive loss like that is, you know, completely unrealistic apart from insensitive. Can you talk to me a little bit about the eight pillars of strength that you write about in your book? Yes, I've I've written about them in both books. I've slightly adapted them, but my, my sort of fundamental premise is that we need to know ourselves and support ourselves um, through life, but particularly when we face change so that when we feel the foundations of our life are being rocked and sort of shaken. We need pillars of support that hold us steady when it's feelings that do us in. It's the feelings that force us to adapt and recognize the new thing that's happening to us. But also it's acting out and um, letting our feelings run us that often does us harm. So if we can find ways of stabilizing our whole system holistically, then we build resilience and building resilience enables us to weather the storms of the feelings that come through us. And the paradox is that we, the more we can accept the things that we cannot change, the more likely it is that change will occur. And I think one of the big difficulties with change is people want to sort of Marie Kondo their feelings and kind of have them in tidy sock drawers but our feelings cannot be controlled they need to be allowed to be expressed and so we have to support ourselves so that's the reason for the pillars and the pillars are both ways of behaving and attitudes and actually doing things so it's the relationship with ourselves so often when people are grieving they turn on themselves they attack themselves because they feel they're not doing it right So the first one is to sort of be self-compassionate and support yourself, be as kind to yourself as you would to a friend. And then the relationship with the person who's died will influence your grieving process, or if it's a living loss, your relationship with others. The difficulty about being troubled is that you transmit suffering, you send send out triggers that push people away. Um, and so, I mean, it's sort of bad design. When you're happy and all is well, people are drawn to you. When you're unhappy and suffering, you often behave in a way that people turn away from you. So it's finding ways of building solid and secure relationships with people that they can connect to you and you can support each other that is incredibly important through a process of change. And ways to manage your emotions. So I kind of mentioned that so that you don't act out. Our relationship with time is altered. Busyness is the biggest anesthetic, along with drugs and alcohol. And so to allow time, it takes much longer than you want. Um, But also our focus on time can be different, that we 
look back at the past, what seemed like the happy past and the future looks frightening. And really, we should keep our focus in the day. So at the moment, when we still, there's so much that we don't know, and there's so much that's uncertain, to kind of draw our attention to what you can manage today, because you can manage manage both things, most things for just a day. Your mind and body, so your body goes on alert. And probably the single most helpful thing you can do is take exercise because it reduces the cortisol, the adrenaline that kind of gets you um, vigilant. And if you do that, followed by even a five minute relaxation, breathing in for the count of seven and out for 11, your whole body calms down. And then you're much more able to deal with the sort of hits of emotion that come through you. Um and then just very briefly to kind of learn to say no, that you, when you're suffering, you can't do as much so that you kind of recognize your boundaries of what you can do and what you can't do, that you can have a sort of, you feel chaotic and out of control. So having structure supports you and not a kind of police state structure, but a kind of um, vague structure that is you, you kind of work in the morning and do more comforting things in the afternoons type of thing. And then fo- focusing, which is, Really, it's your spiritual life. It's your your embodied wisdom. Time to focus on yourself. Sometimes I wish I didn't write eight because they're so blooming long to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Would it be much easier just to have two? Yeah, this is true. <laughs> uh, but two wouldn't do the business, so no, there you, you go. go. For late. Well, as in, in essence, it's everything that you should be doing for your mental health, generally, I suppose, but just really amplified. Like for me, those were all things that I connect with as something I would try and do regularly anyway, but they're just really amplified. And I think self-compassion especially is is very important. That's a very good way of saying it. Uh, amplified and one of the things I say in the book is JFDI, just fucking do it. Like, don't ask the question, don't wonder about it, just do it because you'll feel better and you need to feel better when you feel so bad. I think the relationship one that you mentioned is very interesting for right now because in the context of people being locked down with their partners and and say, hypothetically, one partner is grieving or has lost someone, I can imagine that that's a really difficult relationship at that time if you're trying to support someone, but they're perhaps pushing you away or they don't want the company or, you know, you, you feel kind of helpless. I imagine that everything can feel quite intensified right now. Yes, I think you're right. I think whatever people are feeling is magnified when you're doing everything within the same four walls and that you don't have other people to come and help you. So if someone's grieving, the big thing that helps is your family and friends. You know, they bring in lasagna, they might take your children out, they come and give you a hug, someone will take you for a walk if you've got the good friends, which hopefully um, people have. And if it's just down to you, that's an enormous burden. Um, And um, I think it really is very, very difficult. The final thing that I wanted to ask about before I um, open up some questions that I've got from our audience was about um, not being able to be with loved ones during the crisis. So um, I think one of the things that people are finding harder, sadly, at the moment is so many people are dying and they don't have their loved ones around them when they pass. Do you have any thoughts on that or advice you can share for people who've lost someone and they weren't able to be with them? I mean, I think two things. One of my big messages from GriefWorks and for today is that before someone gets ill and before they're likely to die, although this is completely um, random as well, is that we should be having the conversations with each other about advanced life planning, about whether you'd want to be on a life support machine, 
about your funeral, about your will, telling each other your passwords. So have the conversations about dying because that will, the thing that derails a grieving process is all the regrets and the things that you don't know and the opportunities you wished you'd had to say something or ask something or have something said to you. So I think that really matters and we can all be doing that now. I think with people dying um, in intensive care units without family members present, I think the thing that many, I work with a hospital and I know that a lot of them are working very hard to um, have iPads and phones so that they can um, virtually be with the with the family member. And my recommendation is to film it. So as traumatic and weird as that might sound, the thing about sudden and unexpected death is the shock and you kind of can't quite remember it, although it's very intense in your brain, the image. But having a film can help you go back and sort of see what happened because you sometimes wonder if you misremember. And the reality is that these deaths are are not good deaths. You know, there's a big difference between a good death where which is peaceful and painless, being surrounded by, by the people that love you, that have said everything and held your hand and been with you, and to a death on an intubator without people around you, even when they have fantastic nursing staff. And so it is a much more complex grief and it's much more likely to be traumatic. And so people need to be aware of what the signs of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder are. Um, and and basically you, you could be shocked and very distressed for six weeks, but if your images and flashing kind of shocking images keeps coming back after six or seven weeks, then probably you need to get further support. Thank you. That's incredibly useful. Um, I've got a few questions now from our audience. So every week before I speak to our guest, I ask for some questions from Twitter and I was inundated with questions, but I've got... Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, can't say I, I can't say I had the funnest evening sifting through them. Um, oh, cool, yeah. bit no, too much mortality in your face. <laughs> Listen, and I'm also doing a lot with anxiety and, um, and mental health. So yeah, all think it's fine. I'm having a lot of baths. I'm okay. Um, and, t- and take the medicine, right? Do your own medicine. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So the first question is from Jade, um, who asks, what are the stages of grief and how can these be prolonged if experiencing other traumas, such as bullying, the stress of losing a job, your own health issues, etc.? And also what type of support should employers be providing to support each stage of grief? That's about eight questions. I know. Um, And I really feel for her if that is her experience, because every new loss brings back a previous loss. So having multiple losses is very confusing and can certainly prolong and intensify the grieving process. So I would definitely recommend that she saw a professional. I don't think this would would be enough of just seeing your friends and mates and journaling and doing the kind of general things that you would do to get support. I, I prefer the model of the dual process to the stages. So the stages, I think, are very useful to name what are the feelings, to normalize feelings, which is often feeling numb, feeling furious, feeling very sad, feeling despair, um, and then in the end sort of facing the reality and feeling hope again. So I think those feelings, can you can have all of those feelings in an hour. So, you know, I think people often confuse the Kubler-Ross stages that I'm going through the numb and shock phase and then I'm going through the bargaining phase and it's like you do two weeks on each one and at the end of eight weeks you're sort of sorted. The model I like is the dual process. 
um, which talks about on one hand you have loss and um, the experience of grief, which is where you get the support to allow yourself to feel the pain, to accommodate the loss and adjust to this new reality. And and the other side of it is the restorative focus, where you have a break from the pain, you have hope for the future, you do things that um, intentionally calm you, and you move between the two, you oscillate. So I was talking to somebody yesterday, and she's had multiple losses. So I was saying, in your day, give yourself a slot, maybe an hour, where you think and talk about the person that's died you maybe journal you look at photographs you have a focus for your loss and then the rest of the day do things that enrich you you know go for a walk do uh, listen to music be with your family have fun with your children so that you intentionally create space between loss and restoration and that's how we heal is moving between the two the pain of the past and allowing a break from it to have hope for the future until in the end we find our new normal and adapt and um, hope is the agent of is the alchemy that turns life around so we have to have hope that we can get to the other side and we certainly need that during the pandemic but um, what was her name Jade 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 would need that too but I would certainly tell Jade if, to, to get support. And from her, I, I hope she's got a good manager. Talk to her manager about all these multiple things that are happening to her and um, help the manager, get inform the manager and talk together and collaborate together and with HR what support that she can get for herself to enable her to work. And I do think companies have got a, a lot better at that and are a lot more aware about the mental health of their employees, even from a few years ago. I do too. And, and, and it's their talent, isn't it? They need to support their talent. Absolutely. The next question is from Lauren Dudley, who asks, any advice for owning loss for someone that isn't yours? For example, I'm not close to most of my family and I have familial relationships to many who are not biologically related to me. Often I felt grief and loss over someone in that situation, but that person had a biological daughter who I feel deserves that feeling more. It feels almost disrespectful to them to grieve at that level. Is that normal to feel wary of this? And am I right to be? No, you're not right to be. The The legitimacy of what you feel is where your emotional investment resides. So if the feeling of love and then loss is with people who aren't biologically your family, you need to legitimize, own and allow yourself to feel the pain of that loss. And if your bio biological family you don't have a lot of feeling for, then you probably won't grieve so intensely. So support yourself and allow yourself to feel the pain that you do. Absolutely don't make it worse and more complicated by diminishing it and saying that you shouldn't be feeling that because that will only do you harm. Great, thank you. And then the final question is from B, who asks, how can I deal with anxiety around other loved ones dying after being bereaved? I mean, it's a bit what I talked about earlier. I think the things that around death that we don't talk about and that we don't think about are much more frightening to us. And that I think we need to examine death as much as we examine life. And so maybe B can talk to her family about what she fears, what her worries are, get them to tell her what their worries are, that they agree together what the sort of knowledge and the sort of information they want each other to have. And also to 
to keep her attention in what she does know that you she can terrorize herself with telling herself stories about things that could happen to her family but actually also be grateful for what she does have and keep it in the day um, is a very good way of kind of keeping yourself grounded so i would do holding both holding the reality that people do die and the people that you love can die and talk to them about that and discuss kind of what you feel about that but also the practical information but also there's a a method I use with people, which is the sort of television screen. If you feel yourself having a frightening image, close your eyes and put it on a television screen, take a breath, switch the channel and put the image on the television screen, which is a, your safe place, which could be a hill or a garden or a beach. Take a breath and then move your attention to what you're doing. And if you do that a lot, that brings you back to the day and kind of let yourself know the value of your day and be grateful for the small things that you have in the day and that can support you. Wonderful, thank you. And the final thing that I'd like to ask just from me is if anyone mm. listening who is going through the grieving process at the moment, are there a couple of small steps that, of things that they could do today um, to to help themselves? Definitely. So one is to be kind to themselves so to be self-compassionate, if they're aware of that sort of shitty committee, that critical voice that they have, to write it down and then look at it and say, would you say that to anybody else? And so be, be choose to be kind to yourself. Intentionally do things that soothe you, that you know comfort you, whether that's making a cup of tea or listening to music or talking to a friend um, or having a, you know, a, a scented bath, any of those things. But also get outside. So wherever you live, you can get outside, hopefully. Um, and uh, moving your body around, looking up at the sky, breathing in nature, being in green helps. If you can get to a park, that helps, um, is incredibly helpful. If you can go with someone, walking and talking and being outside is an amazing health benefit. You feel closer, you get the benefit of the green, and you will always feel better by the time you come home. Amazing. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you so much for coming on today. This has been an incredibly comforting and informative and amazing episode. If people would like to find out more about you and follow you online, where should they go? So my website is www.juliasamuel.co.uk and I'm on Instagram, which is at juliasamuelmbe. Um, and I would love people to come on and ask me questions and to kind of interact with me if they feel that I can support them. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate and review the show so more people can find it. You can follow me on social media at Jelly Malin on all platforms. There's new episodes out every week, so subscribe now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.